Springtime. Celebrated in music, poetry and prose, lovingly depicted in paintings, in fabrics and even in concrete. Spring is warmly welcomed all around the world by almost every living thing, including by us at the Worcester Talking Magazine. And in this April edition, we look at spring from all angles, from Grecian eggs to Chinese takeaways, from sport to gardening, from inventors to explorers. I'm Pippa Curtis, and joining me from the comfort of their own potting sheds are Catherine Neal, Hello. Phil Lee, Hello. and Jane Fairs. Hello. There are too many poems written about spring to fit into one talking magazine, of course, but Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote one which we couldn't miss out. Nothing is so beautiful as spring, when weeds in wheels shoot long and lovely and lush. Thrushes' eggs look little low heavens, and thrush through the echoing timber does so rinse and wring the ear, it strikes like lightnings to hear him sing. The glassy pear tree leaves and blooms, they brush the descending blue, that blue is all in a rush with richness, The racing lambs, too, have fair their fling. What is all this juice and all this joy? A strain of the earth's sweet being in the beginning in Eden Garden. Have, get, before it cloy, before it cloud, Christ, Lord, and sour with sinning, innocent mind and mayday in girl and boy. Most, O maid's child, thy choice, and worthy the winning. In the book, The Fire of Joy, Clive James wrote, In this quirkily compulsive masterpiece by Gerard Manley Hopkins, the phrase Little Low Heavens is the true start of the poem. Until then, it's all warm-up and even sounds standard, not to say staid. But the Little Low Heavens are beyond metaphorical. They constitute a sudden upgrading of the world view, Finding such things and being overwhelmed by them is the big game of poetry. The very occasional poet, like Hopkins, seems out to remind us that poetry isn't just words, it's visions. And the question is, often, visions of where? Well, heaven. It's in the poem. He looks at the bird's eggs and sees paradise on earth. The rest of us might look at them and see lunch, but Hopkins is on a different plane. Surely his idiosyncratic diction is meant to remind us of that, of monkishly austere dedication, those head-banging moments of spiritual revelation in the tight-fitting cell. His mentor, Robert Bridges, wanted to straighten out his quirks so as to make him more marketably normal, i.e. more like Robert Bridges. Somehow, Hopkins got his body of work done despite offers of help. In my time, there were still prominent critics who couldn't abide his quirks. But the long run did its work, and nowadays it takes a dolt to question his achievement. The flaring moments are too brilliant to be blinked away. The racing lambs have fair their fling. Why are they jumping backwards, you ask? But come on, haven't you ever seen lambs racing? They bounce around. Hopkins took delight in life. What is all this juice and all this joy? 
For him, the whole world was Eden Garden. Catherine. That's where the moths collide, says Mrs Cartwright darkly at the box room in the attic. And one has an appalling picture of a sort of Battle of Britain going on up there in the quiet, sunny places under the roof. Usually when winter is over, and this more often than not coincides with spring cleaning and the tidying of drawers, I like to put all the thicker garments away, the paper over them sprinkled with DDT powder, everything laid correctly and neat, ready for winter again. Coats hung in cellophane bags, rugger shorts and stockings and striped jerseys clean and mended, mufflers and gloves neatly folded and paired. How pleasant this promises to be. But how much less orderly it is when it actually happens, because no two people in a family ever cast clouts at the same time. Some people never have any to cast, being able to exist in nylon bra and pants throughout the coldest winter. But how much slimmer and younger most people look in the spring. And how agreeable to find in the trunk where you're putting the fur gloves and scarves and thick pullovers a length of flowered shantung that you bought at a summer sale last year. Then it seemed a mad extravagance. Now it seemed to have been the most prudent and far-seeing action. It means you can have a new outfit for practically nothing. That was an extract from One Woman's Year by Stella Martin Curry, who was a journalist on the Bristol Times in the 1950s. The expression, ne'er class to clout till may be out, doesn't specify whether it's the month of May referred to or the May tree, otherwise known in this country as the flowering cherry. But the Japanese have a very soft spot for that tree. Phil. Spring in Japan, Sakura and Hanami. We're talking cherries. It would be difficult to exaggerate the importance of the cherry to Japanese culture and to Japanese leisure. In fact, the cherry, the Sakura in Japanese, is now regarded as a national flower of Japan, with the chrysanthemum representing the imperial throne and the royal family. The massive colour in a clump of flowering cherries has led to the idea that they symbolise clouds and by extension that they are a representation of the temporary nature of life itself. The beautiful flowers and the brief period of their blossoming readily suggests both the joy and uncertainty of life, its pleasures and its abrupt ending. Most Japanese schools and public buildings have a cherry tree outside. The 100 yen coin carries a depiction of cherry blossom, while the mascot of the 2020 Tokyo Paralympics, called Sameity, is coloured pink to echo the colour of the blooms. Less attractively, the Japanese army of the 1930s and 1940s would plant cherry trees in areas they had conquered to mark their colonisation of the area. More positively, the cherry and its spring blossom has appeared in many Japanese poems, particularly the short-form haiku. A famous 17th-century writer of haiku was Matsuo Basho, who, on meeting a long-lost friend, chose to sit with him under a cherry tree. He wrote... A lively cherry in full bloom, between the two lives now made one. Hanami 
its literal translation is flower viewing, is the ancient Japanese practice of drinking or picnicking under blooming sakura. Originally, this was the preserve of the imperial royal family, but it later extended to the samurai or warrior class and by the 19th century to practically everyone. The meteorological agency and the public track the Sakura Zensen, the blossom front, northward with the warmer spring weather and this information is broadcast on national media. This eagerness for blossoms recalls another of Basho's haiku. From five to six miles I walk every day in search of you, cherry blossoms. The first to see blossom is Okinawa in the south in January and it reaches the capital Tokyo around the end of March. Blossom parties are held in parks and shrines and Hanami festivals bring people together to enjoy the flowers, the sake and the company, sometimes after dark when paper lanterns are lit. Typical Hanami food might be dango, a dumpling made with rice flour and washed down with green tea, or a bento box made up of rice or noodles with fish or meat often pickled. Where did all the British cherries go, I wonder? They were quite common in my Herefordshire childhood, but now they're rather expensive and seldom ripe enough. The Japanese varieties are largely inedible, rather bitter. But the idea of sitting beneath a tree, eating and drinking and talking with friends, is now, of all times, rather attractive. <laughs> it certainly is. Thank you, Phil. That almost transcendental relationship that the Japanese have with their cherry trees is also seen in our ancestors' relationship with the water they discovered bubbling spontaneously out of the ground, almost as if by divine means. Jane has been investigating sacred springs. Where a spring rises or a river flows, there ought we to build altars and offer sacrifices, so Seneca said. Evidence of water worship exists worldwide, and settlements have been situated by springs for thousands of years. Long ago, water was seen as the abode of gods and spirits. For example, at Coventine as well, at Carabroth, where a a Celtic goddess of springs and wells, was worshipped in a Roman temple complex. The Romans introduced the festival of Fontanalia, dedicated to Fontus, the god of springs, where garlands adorned wells and streams. The early church saw this as water worship, but later on, Christian missionaries often established a cell by a sacred spring and the saint's name would then attach to the well, such as happened at St. Cyril's well on Anglesey. What we now call holy wells are those springs and wells that through time have become associated with a particular healing ability. Whether associated with saints or other individuals, or those treated with a particular veneration for their spiritually uplifting qualities. The waters of holy wells have long been used to heal many conditions by drinking, bathing or occasionally applying as a poultice. Sometimes their names reflect what they healed, such as the eye well, wart well or gout well. 
The variety of conditions healed was vast. Anything from broken bones, ruptures, sprains and rheumatism, to deafness, headaches, asthma, tumours, jaundice, infertility and mental illness. The greatest number of wells healed eyes. At Roxeter Roman Town in Shropshire, where I worked in the 80s, 40 plaster eyes were found and one of sheet gold. In the mid-18th century, visiting spas to take the waters became fashionable and we have several in our area, such as Tembury Wells, Droitwich Spa, Malvern and further south, Bath. Droitwich had saline baths. At Bath, the hot springs still flow as they did in Roman times and deliver over one million litres of water containing 42 minerals and trace elements every day. Malvern, on the other hand, has St Anne's Well and Holy Well, used by the inhabitants from an early date until Dr John Wall established the town as a spa, building accommodation and a bathhouse. In the early days, donkeys carried the patients up to the wells, we in this area know that Morven has some steep climbs. The notable quality of the water was its purity. It has no taste. This was celebrated in a cheerful rhyme of the time. The Morven water said Dr. Wall is famed for containing nothing at all. Those who live nearby still collect water from the well, free nowadays. At Romsley Church in the Clent Hills is St Kenelm's Well. In this case, the spring rose at the scene of his murder. His body was buried at Winchcombe Abbey, which became a major shrine and place of pilgrimage. Perhaps such a money spinner could not be allowed to remain at a humble parish church. Kenelm was a member of the royal family of Mercia. He died in 811 AD. Below the abbey at Malmesbury rises Daniel's Well, a clear spring which flows into a pool. This is named after Bishop Daniel of Malmesbury, who submerged his body in the cold waters throughout the year as a penance. There were also traditions at other wells. It is said that at St Chad's Well, Lichfield, the saint would stand naked in the water and pray. St Adhelm is said to have sat in his well at Dalting, singing psalms, and St Patrick sat naked in the Struer Wells, County Down, singing spiritual songs. Further north, there is St Hilda's Well at Hildewell, near Whitby. The name of the village commemorates the abbess Hilda of Whitby, who, when travelling to Giesborough, a distance of some twenty miles, became exhausted and thirsty. She prayed, and a spring arose at that spot. Its pure, clear water possessed healing qualities, and to mark the miracle, a church was built. Or perhaps one of my favourites, the ebbing and flowing well at Giggleswick. Legend tells of a terrified nymph who was pursued by a satyr, till the gods, answering her prayers, 
turned her into a crystal-clear healing spring which ebbs and flows with her breath, not perhaps for what I would have prayed under the circumstances. While London does not appear to be the most obvious place to find holy wells, there are many at one time. The River Fleet, now covered by roads and buildings, was once known as the River of Wells, still present in names like Clarkham Well and Sadler's Wells, the latter built over the site of the Holy Well of St John's Priory, and later named after Thomas Sadler, who uncovered it and turned it into a successful spa. All across the country can be found sacred springs and wells. Nowadays, many offerings are still left, and respect is still seen in the well-dressing ceremonies of Derbyshire and Malvern. Hands up those who have not thrown a coin into a wishing well, though from past experience, some of the waters taste pretty dreadful. Continuing our theme this month of spring, JP's found a different sort. So did you have a jack-in-the-box when you were a child? An innocuous small wooden or metal box with a hinged lid and sometimes with a handle that you turned to make it play a tune. Very often, pop goes the weasel. And when the music reached a particular point, or if you simply undid the catch, the lid would throw itself open and a, and a puppet would burst forth on the end of a coiled spring, scaring the daylights out of you. Ideal for an April fool. These days, the puppet would most likely have been a clown or a jester. But in times gone by, it was quite likely to have been a little wooden devil. So, why a devil? In the 19th century, there was a character known as Spring-Heeled Jack, who became the subject of not just popular literature, but of real-life conjecture. Many quite fanciful newspaper reports told of how an eerie cloaked figure was witnessed bouncing around Victorian London and springing up unexpectedly from nowhere to execute physical feats equal to those of Batman, all the while committing criminal and violent acts more appropriate to the Joker, or even Jack the Ripper with whom he was associated by some. The chief protagonist in many a Victorian penny dreadful, Spring-Heeled Jack, was frequently described as some kind of clawed devil. Not the sort of chap you'd want to have spring out of a box at you, even on April Fool's Day. But that was the 19th century, and by that time the jack-in-the-box toy had already been around for a hundred years or so. Invented by a German clockmaker known simply as Klaus round about 1700 as a birthday present for a local prince, it quickly became known as a devil-in-a-box as he had given the leaping figure a somewhat devilish appearance, and Jack being a colloquial term for the devil, it was soon given the name Jack-in-the-box. That still doesn't explain why Klaus chose a devil to leap out of the box. Bear with me and we'll find that there is a deeper history. The first printed use of the term Jack-in-a-box appeared in John Fox's Acts and Monuments of 1563, which reported a comment made by Bishop Nicholas Ridley, 
There are railing bills against the Lord's Supper, terming it Jack of the Box, Sacrament of the Halter, Round Robin, with like unseemly terms. It's clear that the term was used to represent something unsavoury or insulting. Very soon afterwards there's another reference that shows the phrase to have a meaning close to those who peddled a pig in a poke. Jack in the Box was the name given to a swindler who cheated tradesmen by substituting empty boxes for the full ones that were expected. Such a Jack is found in James Cranston's reprinting of satirical poems of the time of the Reformation. An anonymous poem, titled The Bird in the Cage, was first published in 1570, and runs Jack in the Box, for all thy mockers of vengeance mot the fall, thy subtlety and palsaldry our freedom brings in thrall. Which means roughly, Jack in the Box, for all your mockery, we must take our revenge. Your cunning and cheating threatens our freedom. Well, a cunning swindler, perhaps, but a devil? We need to go further back. Once upon a time, long, long ago, in the 14th century to be exact, in a place called North Marston in the English county of Buckinghamshire, lived the rector, Sir John Shorn. Hearing of Sean's shining reputation for being a good and virtuous Christian, a local devil named Bootstrappus decided that he would do his best to take his soul. And appearing before John one night in a burst of flame and a cloud of smoke, the demon said to him, Sell to me thy soul, John Sean, and I will give thee powers beyond thy wildest imaginings. I will make thee a worker of wonders, the greatest wizard the world hath ever known. Sean's first thought was to use his boot to kick the devil out of his house. But then a cunning thought came into his head. A way in which he might take the devil up on his offer, and yet keep his soul. Looking down at his boots, John Sean had thought of their leather soles, and how the word soul sounded just like the word soul. So he replied to the devil, Aye, for the power that you promised, you may indeed have my soul. Grinning, because it was sure that it had won, Bootstrappus then made John Sean the greatest wizard in all the six continents, with power to control earth, air, fire and water. When the devil asked Sir John to give him his soul in return, Sean removed his left boot and laughed. As I said, you may have my soul, the soul's my boot, and you are welcome to it. Angry that he had been cheated, the devil then leapt into John Sean's boot to take the soul. But when he did, Sean covered the top of it with a crucifix and trapped the devil inside, saying a prayer that the devil may never escape from it. And when the devil tried to crawl out of a hole in the sole of the boot, John sealed it up with wax from a church candle. Time and time again, the devil leapt and bounced with all its might, even curling up its spiky tail like a spring to gain more force. But no matter how it tried, it could never leap out of the bootleg. And that, they say, was the reason why the very earliest jack-in-the-boxes contained not clowns or jesters, 
but little grinning wooden devils. So I didn't have a jack-in-a-box, but I did have a slinky, and I spent months watching it slide down the stairs. As its jingle once cheered, a spring, a spring, a marvellous thing. Everyone knows it's slinky. The coiled toy certainly is a marvellous, if simple, thing. In 1943, mechanical engineer Richard James was designing a device that the Navy could use to secure equipment and shipments on ships while they rocked at sea. As the story goes, he dropped the coiled wires he was tinkering with on the ground and watched them tumble end over end across the floor. After dropping the coil, he could have gotten up frustrated and chased after it without a second thought. But as inventors often do, he had a second thought. Perhaps this would make a good toy. A lot of inventors talk about keeping an open mind and maintaining playful habits, explains Monica Smith, the head of exhibitions at Smithsonian's Lemonson Centre. The slinky was something that he saw happen and he thought it was cool. It wasn't an obvious idea for a toy, she says. It wasn't something he was setting out for. It's more serendipitous than that. He kept an open mind and found a different use for it. Richard James went home and told his wife, Betty James, about his idea. In 1944, she scoured the dictionary for a fitting name, landing on Slinky, which means sleek and sinuous in movement or outline. Together, with a $500 loan, they co-founded James Industries in 1945, the year the Slinky hit store shelves. At first, folks didn't know what to make of it. How could a bundle of wire be a toy? The Jameses managed to convince a Jimbles department store in Philadelphia to let them do a demonstration during the Christmas shopping season in 1945. There were 400 slinkies stocked that day and they were gone in less than two hours, selling for a dollar a pop, or about $14 in today's value. In 2019, on National Slinky Day, the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission installed a historical marker to commemorate the invention of the toy in Clifton Heights, the Philadelphia suburb where it was first manufactured. 74 years ago, Richard James received a patent for the Slinky, describing a helical spring toy which will walk on an amusement platform such as an inclined plane or set of steps from a starting point to successive lower landing points without application of external force beyond the starting force and the action of gravity. He'd worked out the ideal dimensions for the spring, 80 feet of wire into a two-inch spiral. You can find an exact mathematical equation for the slinky in his patent materials. It was Betty that masterminded the toy's success. In 1960, Richard left his family behind and joined a religious cult, and he died in 1974. Betty, a new single mother with six kids, took a big risk on the toy and waged the mortgage of their home to go to a toy show in New York in 1963. It was there that the toy caught a second wind, again selling out. The classic toy's catchy jingle aired on television for the first time that year. 
After that, the toy sort of took on a life of its own. During the Vietnam War, soldiers would sometimes use a slinky as a portable extendable antenna for their radios, fastening one end to themselves and tossing the other end over a tree branch to get a clear signal, according to popular mechanics. This bit of slinky history was highlighted in an exhibition entitled Invention at Play that opened in 2002 at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History before going on tour. That's a very inventive story. This toy made of metal wire could be used in a very flexible way to solve a problem. You could throw it, carry it, stretch it, says Smith. Most people don't think of that as invention. They just think that's clever. But it's definitely an inventive activity to look at a device near you and find another use for it. The slinky has even gone into space. In 1985, astronaut Margaret Rea Seddon demonstrated the slinky's behaviour in zero gravity during a telecast from the Discovery Space Shuttle. It won't slink at all, Seddon said, it sort of droops. The slinky took many forms too, most famously the slinky dog, which had been popular in mid-century homes before its cameo in the 1995 movie Toy Story. Before Toy Story, annual sales were only in the hundreds. The movie boosted the sales of the toy, which James Industries patented in 1997 once again. The company manufactured 12,000 a year in February 1996, and numbers rose to 33,000 by April of that year and to 40,000 in July of that year. When the Slinky was inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame in 2000, more than 250 million had been sold to date. Smith emphasises that the story of the Slinky should serve as inspiration for the next generation of inventors, noting that many get their start by creating toys. And that's true of Jerome Lemelson, who invented several toys before amassing 500 patents, including those for the VCR and the Walkman. If you want to inspire another generation, you want it to be accessible, Smith explains. Seeing people start with toys shows you don't have to be Edison or Steve Jobs to be an inventor. It doesn't have to be an iPhone. It can be something as simple as a slinky. From child's play to grown-ups play, here's Phil on his favourite pastime. Spring is here, and with it, cricket. Or is it the other way round? Every spring, the most extraordinary thing happened in my cricket bag. Absolutely nothing. And I was never really able to get my head around it. In September, I would play the last match of the season and bundle my whites into the bag. Every April, I would open the bag and find my kit inside, still bundled up and still filthy. Dried mud had fallen from my shoes and covered everything with a gritty powder. The trousers wore snot-green streaks from the last dive of the season. The elbow of the shirt was ripped. The sweaters, and I was going to need them all, looked grubby and sad. I always expected the kit to clean itself over the course of the winter, to be fresh and inviting as I opened the zip, smelling of laundry, still warm from the iron, in a neat pile along with the pads 
the wicket-keeping gauntlets and the old cricket balls that people like to throw at my head during the warm-up. The annual failure of my kit to self-clean was baffling. After all, it was the only miracle that didn't take place in April. Why this one miracle should fail to come about in the face of so many others was a perpetual mystery for it was as if cricket had called a life back to the land, as if cricket had restored warmth to the sun, as if the grass was growing because cricket had demanded it, as if candlestick flowers appeared on the horse chestnut trees so that cricket grounds could look more crickety. Of all the major countries, England in the cold north is the only one that celebrates the sport as the rite of spring, a return to life as the rebirth of hope. Ashish Nandi famously said that cricket was an Indian game accidentally discovered by the English, but only the English could have invented it. Cricket was a response to the annual miracle of the English spring. The birds start to lift their voices in song, bare trees grow leaves, flowers leap from the earth, the sun lingers ever longer in the sky, and even in the cities the English lose their heads. On the first day of real warmth, the women are at once a layer or two from nakedness. Men wear their jackets on their thumbs, and the after-work pubs explode into the pavement as the world seeks an alfresco drink, a joke, a flirty moment, and a conversation about cricket. When I was a boy, the change in seasons was celebrated on Streatham Common. No longer did John Murtra and I make goal with the jerseys and play three goals and you're in. We drove stumps into the ground and batted and bowled until tea time. Across the open grass, other boys made the same decision. It was more like a religious observation than a sporting decision. To play football in spring would have seemed blasphemous, a perverse rejection of life and light. As the weather grew warmer, my family would go to Birmingham to spend a week with my grandparents, and that too meant cricket. My grandfather and I would take the bus to Edgebaston and watch Warwickshire struggle for mastery. We would lunch on sandwiches that my grandfather made, take tea and cake at tea time, and as evening came, we would go to the bar where my grandfather would drink a half pint of mild and I would drink lemonade. And it would seem that cricket itself had transformed the world, that cricket brought warmth and life, that cricket was responsible for making the things grow, and that the turtle doves purred in the trees because they were suddenly required to accompany the sound of bat on ball and the hoarse shouts of the fielders. Cricket is a game rich in nostalgia, but all the nostalgia in the world is nothing when compared with spring. Never mind the old days. What about the new days? What about the life and promise and hope of the new season? What about the newly warm sun, the newly warmed whites, the fact that it's all about to begin and... This is the best bit of all. You have absolutely no idea what happens next. Coming up, Chinese food, a bit of gardening, a short story set in the 20th century but with 21st century relevance, and how a coiled spring helped 18th century seafarers find their way around the world. So how did a spring help seafarers in the 18th century? Clockwork. Catherine. At the third stroke... It will be 8.57, precisely. For every 15 degrees that one travels eastward, the local time moves one hour ahead. Similarly, travelling west, the local time moves back one hour for every 15 degrees of longitude. 
Therefore, if we know the local times at two points on Earth, we can use the difference between them to calculate how far apart those places are in longitude, east or west. This idea was very important to sailors and navigators in the 17th century. They could measure the local time wherever they were by observing the sun, but navigation required that they also know the time at some reference point, for example Greenwich, in order to calculate their longitude. Although accurate pendulum clocks existed in the 17th century, the motions of a ship and changes in humidity and temperature would prevent such a clock from keeping accurate time at sea. Charles II founded the Royal Observatory in 1675 to solve the problem of finding longitude at sea. If an accurate catalogue of the positions of the stars could be made, and the position of the moon then measured accurately relative to the stars, the moon's motion could be used as a natural clock to calculate Greenwich time. Sailors at sea could measure the moon's position relative to bright stars and use tables of the moon's position compiled at the Royal Observatory to calculate the time at Greenwich. This means of finding longitude was known as the lunar distance method. In 1714, the British government offered by Act of Parliament £20,000, an immense fortune in those days, for a solution which could provide longitude to within half a degree, that's two minutes of time. The methods would be tested on a ship sailing over the ocean from Great Britain to any such port in the West Indies as those commissioners chose without losing their longitude beyond the limits before mentioned and should prove to be tried and found practicable and useful at sea. A body known as the Board of Longitude was set up to administer and judge the longitude prize. They received more than a few weird and wonderful suggestions like squaring the circle or inventing a perpetual motion machine. The phrase finding the longitude became a sort of catchphrase for the pursuits of fools and lunatics. Many people believed that the problem simply could not be solved. However, the longitude problem was eventually solved by a working class joiner from Lincolnshire with little formal education. John Harrison he took on the scientific and academic establishment of his time and won the Longitude Prize through extraordinary mechanical insight, talent and determination. Harrison was born in Falby near Wakefield in Yorkshire in 1693, but his family moved to Barrow in Lincolnshire when he was quite young. His father was a carpenter and John followed in the family trade. He built his first long case clock in 1713 at the age of 20. The mechanism was made entirely from wood, which was not a curious choice of material for a joiner. But three of Harrison's early wooden clocks have survived. The first, the one made in 1713, is in London at the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers Collection in Guildhall. The second, dating from 1715, is in the Science Museum. And the third, 1717, is at Nostil Priory in Yorkshire. During the mid-1720s, John and his brother James designed a series of remarkable precision long case clocks to see how far they could push the capabilities of the design. By inventing a pendulum rod made of alternate wires of brass and steel, 
Harrison eliminated the problem of the pendulum's effective length increasing in warmer weather and slowing the clock. As a result, Harrison's regulators from this period achieved an accuracy of one second in a month, a performance far exceeding the best London clocks of the day. Harrison took up the challenge of building a sufficiently accurate sea clock. After more than 30 years' work, his fourth attempt, known as H4, was taken for a transatlantic voyage, upon which it showed outstanding accuracy and met the criteria for the £20,000 prize. But the Board of Longitude dismissed it as mere luck and demanded more proof. A second trial of H4 was arranged and John's son William departed for Barbados aboard the Tartar on the 28th of March 1764. As with the first trial, William used H4 to predict the ship's arrival at Madeira with extraordinary accuracy. The watch's error was computed to be 39.2 seconds over a voyage of 47 days, three times better than required to win the £20,000 Longitude Prize. The Board of Longitude, however, implied that the watch was a fluke and would not be satisfied unless others of the same kind could be made and tested. Harrison would be paid £10,000 as soon as he disclosed his secrets and handed over his mechanisms to the Astronomer Royal. With the remaining £10,000 being paid when other timekeepers of the same type accurate enough to find longitude to within 30 miles, were made. In order to qualify for the second half of the prize, Harrison had to make at least two more watches and have them tested. The Board of Longitude insisted that he make these copies of H4 himself, but took away the original for testing at the Royal Observatory. Neville Maskelyne, who had been appointed Astronomer Royal in 1765, remained unconvinced that a watch could be more reliable than the lunar distance method for finding Greenwich time. John Harrison, who was then in his 70s, and William worked on a fifth timekeeper, H5, while Kendall made good progress on his copy of H4. Kendall's watch now came to be known as K1 and was completed in 1769 and inspected in early 1770 by the same panel that had examined H4. William Harrison was also present and admitted that the copy was exceptional. The Board of Longitude was asked to consider H5 and K1 as the two copies of H4, but told John and William, in no uncertain terms, that both copies of H4 should be made by Harrison. John, who is now 79 years old, made an appeal to the highest authority in Britain. On the 31st of January 1772, an approach was made to George III via a letter to his private astronomer at Richmond, Dr Stephen de Mainbray. William was summoned for an interview with the King himself, at which time the King is said to have remarked, These people have been cruelly wronged, and by God, Harrison, I will see you righted. H5 was put on trial by the King himself in 1772 and performed superbly. The Board of Longitude, however, refused to recognise the results of this trial. So John and William petitioned Parliament. They were finally awarded £8,750 
by Act of Parliament in June 1773. Perhaps more importantly, John Harrison was finally recognised as having solved the longitude problem. In the meantime, Captain Cook had set out on his second voyage of discovery with K1, Kendall's copy of H4. He returned in July 1775 after a voyage of three years, which ranged from the tropics to the Antarctic. The daily rate of K1 never exceeded eight seconds, corresponding to a distance of two nautical miles at the equator during the entire voyage, and Cook referred to the watch as our faithful guide through all the vicissitudes of climates. It's not known for certain whether Harrison knew of this success, but Cook's voyage proved beyond doubt that longitude could be measured from a watch. John Harrison died almost one year after Cook's return on the 24th of March 1776 in his house at Red Lion Square, London. It was his 83rd birthday, precisely. John Harrison, not just a talented inventor, but clearly a consummate optimist. Often viewed as an inveterate but beautifully articulate pessimist, here the poet A.E. Hausman finds something pleasant to look forward to in the springtime cherry blossom. The loveliest of trees. Loveliest of trees, the cherry now is hung with bloom along the bough and stands about the woodland ride wearing white for Eastertide. Now, of my three score years and ten, twenty will not come again, and take from seventy springs a score, it only leaves me fifty more, and since to look at things in bloom fifty springs a little room, about the woodlands I will go to see the cherry hung with snow. The composer Felix Mendelssohn's piece, Spring Song, has floating cherry blossom against a clear blue sky written all over it. Or has it? John Plush takes a closer look. Mendelssohn, one of his most famous pieces, popularly known as Spring Song, written, one might assume, to conjure up thoughts of springtime. The clue that one maybe should not make this assumption lies in the title not of the piece itself, but of the series of which it is a part, Songs Without Words. As it turned out, at the time he wrote the piece, in Felix Mendelssohn's clear blue early summer skies, ominous clouds were already beginning to gather. Felix Mendelssohn was born in Berlin into a well-to-do family, his father was a banker, in 1809. The second of four children, he shared a phenomenal musical talent with his sister Fanny, with whom he also shared an intense closeness, itself the fuel for occasional rather unkind speculation. Both he and his sister were child prodigies. Felix, talented in not only music, he played the violin and viola, as well as piano and organ, but also in science and languages. 
He was a student of history and geography at the University of Berlin and a visual artist to a professional standard, chiefly watercolours and pencil sketches. Musically, the poet Goethe compared him to Goethe's personal acquaintance, Mozart. Oh yes, and Mendelssohn wrote poetry too, including the text to some of his own songs. Like Mozart, Mendelssohn showed his talents early in life, his first public concert at the piano given when he was but nine years old. At twelve, he was working on a 200-page full score of an opera, Comacho's Wedding, and by seventeen and a half had finished his first two masterpieces, the Octet and the popular Concert Overture to A Midsummer Night's Dream. Mendelssohn had definite views on the role of language in music. Despite writing 106 leader, 13 vocal duets and 60 part songs, he commented in 1842, Words seem to me so uncertain, so vague, so easily misunderstood in comparison to genuine music that fills the soul with a thousand things better than words. The thoughts expressed to me by the music I love are not too indefinite to be put into words, but on the contrary, too definite. Mendelssohn declined to suggest lyrics for pieces such as Spring Song, saying, If I happen to have certain words in mind for one or another of these songs, I would never want to tell them to anyone, because the same words never mean the same things to others. From this philosophy sprang the eight-part series of 48 songs without words, of which Spring Song is one. Mendelssohn has been criticised for his perhaps rather sentimental preoccupation with the past, although this very preoccupation brought the benefit of his rescuing from obscurity the work of no less a predecessor than J.S. Bach himself. Now there's a worthwhile notch on your musical belt. But it was the past that was to visit him in the most devastating way. There are some striking similarities between Mendelssohn and Mozart, and they're not all musical. Both Mozart and the Mendelssohns, Felix and his sister Fanny, matured very early in life. All three were child prodigies, and all three died young. In the Mendelssohn's case, of bleeding on the brain. There is a rare genetic disorder, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome type 4, apparently, which is associated with small body frame, premature ageing, delicate health, some characteristic facial features and a tendency to the rupture of arteries. The facial features include a prominent aquiline nose and deep-set eyes. Meanwhile, the body structure is often compromised by skeletal problems such as osteoporosis, which can result in spine curvature, among other things. Not suffering from curvature of the spine, but being nevertheless of petite frame, Felix was indeed of delicate health, with a similarly prominent nose to that of his sister, though their Jewish descent could explain that, of course, and, according to a visitor, he had dark, unfathomable eyes. 
Felix and Fanny's grandfather, the philosopher Moses Mendelssohn, had exhibited the same physical characteristics, and in addition had curvature of the spine. He, too, died, it is thought, of a blood vessel rupture on the brain. Theories as to how the equally diminutive Mozart died are too many and too various to tell us anything definite, but some fairly recent examinations suggest a possible brain haemorrhage. We do know that Felix, Fanny and, of course, Mozart were extremely intelligent. Above-average intelligence is another characteristic of the condition. Now, it's true that death at an age earlier than we expect today was not uncommon in the 18th and early 19th centuries, and much of what I've said is open to alternative interpretation. But it's hard to dispel the notion that the writing was already on the wall of Felix Mendelssohn's music room when he wrote his delicate and optimistic spring song. Now that the winter's gone, the earth hath lost her snow-white robes, and now no more the frost candies the grass, or casts an icy cream upon the silver lake or crystal stream. But the warm sun thaws the benumbed earth and makes it tender, gives a sacred birth to the dead swallow, wakes in hollow tree the drowsy cuckoo and the humble bee. Now do a choir of chirping minstrels bring in triumph to the world the youthful spring. The valleys, hills and woods in rich array welcome the coming of the longed-for May. Now all things smile, only my love doth lower. Nor hath the scalding noonday sun the power to melt that marble ice, which still doth hold her heart congealed and makes her pity cold. The ox, which lately did for shelter fly into the stall, doth now securely lie in open fields, and love no more is made by the fireside. But in the cooler shade Armintas now doth with his chloris sleep under a sycamore, and all things keep time with the season. Only she doth carry June in her eyes, in her heart, January. That was another poem, read by Jane, called Spring, which was written by a rather depressed-sounding Thomas Carew in 1640. Stella Martin Curry's book, One Woman's Year, an extract from which we heard earlier, was first published in 1953, though it's clearly based on assumptions and standards from before the war. Here she's writing about the month of February. Catherine. The light lasts past tea time in February, and because of that, there comes a day sometimes when it's possible to achieve a mixture of firelight, daffodils, open windows and tea. Delectable. If to this is added an optimistic bird singing outside and the people sitting round the fire know each other well enough to be able to sit back and say little if they feel like it, then one can forgive February for everything. For about half an hour, it can be my favourite month. In the tree alphabet used by the Druids, the quick beam or rowan or mountain ash was the tree of the month. This was a tree they considered good against lightning and against witches' charms 
and it was the tree of quickening. Here we come to eggs. If I add eggs to the mixture mentioned above, the effect is spoilt, but I seem to share with the Greeks the strong feeling that this month particularly is connected with eggs. They considered this the time when the egg of the year was waiting to be hatched out and represented it by the Greek character Omega, the great O or egg. Although I know no Greek at all, this seems a sensible symbol to adopt. It's usually in February that I make a vow that I'm going to learn how to boil an egg properly. So far it's always seemed to me to be one of those devastatingly simple things which is almost impossible to do well. I suppose this desire to improve stirs in February because it's then that hens begin to justify their existence and altogether one becomes egg conscious again. What I've said about the Greeks and the Druids hints at deep primitive instincts behind all this and they were no doubt right. I may have some kink which prevents me from boiling eggs satisfactorily but judging by the number of egg boiling aids which have been thought out during the centuries the disability is not new. During one February, I received from the country a dozen large brown eggs. I was so determined that for once we should all have perfectly boiled eggs for breakfast that I made the toast and the coffee before putting the eggs into boiling water. This way I felt I could concentrate. While I was making the toast, Charles visited the kitchen and informed me that musical people swore by the overture to the marriage of Figaro as an egg-boiling aid. It took, he said, three and a half minutes if played correctly and four if played badly. I asked if that meant a small permanent orchestra living in the kitchen or did you hire people to come in specially or was he just talking about a good gramophone record? Charles said that for the way he liked an egg one had to count an extra 30 after the record was finished. That's if it was a good record. I feel I'm not nearly musical enough for this method. On the other hand, I remember Mrs Cartwright said she always sings three verses of Widdicombe Fair for a soft boil and four for a harder boil. The difficulty about this is that I don't really know Widdicombe Fair. I never get past Peter Gurney and there I have to relapse into humming, which would alter the timing. This poem is called March and it was written by Edward Thomas in 1914. Now I know that spring will come again, perhaps tomorrow. However late I've patience after this night following on such a day. While still my temples ached from the cold burning of hail and wind, and still the primroses torn by the hail were covered up in it, the sun filled earth and heaven with a great light and a tenderness, almost warmth, where the hail dripped. As if the mighty sun wept tears of joy, but t'was too late for warmth. The sunset piled mountains on mountains of snow and ice in the west. Somewhere among their folds the wind was lost, and yet t'was cold. And though I knew that spring would come again, I knew it had not come, that it too was lost in those mountains chill. What did the thrushes know? Rain, snow, sleet, hail had kept them as quiet as the primroses. They had but an hour to sing. On boughs they sang, on gates, on ground. They sang while they changed perches and while they fought, if they remembered to fight. So earnest were they to pack into that hour their unwilling horde of song before the moon grew brighter than the clouds. Then t'was no time for singing merely, so they could keep off silence and night, 
They cared not what they sang or screamed, whether it was hoarse or sweet or fierce or soft, and to me all was sweet. They could do no wrong. Something they knew, I also, while they sang and after, not till night had half its stars and never a cloud was I aware of silence stained with all that hour's songs, a silence saying that spring returns, perhaps tomorrow. Thank you, Phil. That was March by Edward Thomas. Here's Stella Martin Curry's recollection of March, Catherine. A year or so ago, our lawn, which is a town lawn and therefore struggling with hereditary disadvantages, showed signs of becoming bald, not in patches, but all over. March being the month, so my gardening books say, for doing something about this, Charles roused me from what he called my slothful attitude on the subject and said we must now renovate the lawn. Damp, warm weather, said Charles, looking out into a sort of pale lilac fog. Ideal for planting grass seed. Have we got any? Of course we hadn't got any. But he rang up a seed merchant who said he had 46 customers to supply before the weekend with grass seed, but he hoped to be able to fit Charles's modest order in. Everybody else seemed to be putting acres under grass. Mr Madge, the greengrocer, who is by way of being a better philosopher and orator than a greengrocer, also promised Roddy, who's a friend of his, to let him have two pounds of last year's seed very cheaply. It might not come up, but there again it might, he said. Anyway, it's a bargain at the price. As the grass seed didn't turn up for a few days, I managed to forget the lawn. But this was only a short respite. One afternoon, while I was talking to friends in the sitting room, a large, toil-worn hand was suddenly thrust through the open French window. It held a small, dirty bag, and a well-known voice said, Two shillings. Shall I put it on the bill? It's a good two bob's worth, that. An hour later, a lorry arrived, with what looked like half a hundredweight of grass seed. There was, I felt, no chance of escape now. All the materials were at hand. The lawn must be renovated. When renovating lawn, rake with judgment, remove weeds and destroy worms. After tea that day, we all did a little raking with judgment. And the result was that in about ten minutes, our rakes were full of well-grown roots of grass we couldn't afford to lose. Next day, rain fell heavily. And Charles said that this was ideal weather for grass planting. We must make the most of it. We put on Macintoshes and with the rain dripping down our necks, raked some more. Then we sent Richard to the tool shed for stakes and a mallet. As he reached it, Roddy came out of it, saying that he couldn't understand how he'd managed to spill half the grass seed out of the bag onto the tool shed floor. He'd only cut a few stitches in the top of the bag so as to be ready when we wanted the seed. I went on with some raking while Charles and Richard hammered stakes in round the lawn. Of course, we all loved sowing the seed, but that delightful job was soon over, and the next stage, tying strands of black cotton to the stakes, was maddening. The lawn, which had all seemed rather too small, seemed to expand as we tripped over the cotton, broke strands and controlled our tempers with difficulty. 
No hope of keeping birds off without it, said Charles. Almost as he spoke, a robin flew down under some strands of black cotton, ate his fill of seed, flew up, easily avoiding the strands on the way, perched on the laburnums and burst into grateful song. Until the boys went to bed, the house rang with wild shouts as one or other of them saw a bird negotiating the black cotton. When they were in bed, they couldn't sleep because the wind rose and the bell Richard had arranged in the pear tree tinkled more than efficiently. Charles said that we must set the alarm for dawn. It wouldn't do to leave the grass seed to the birds unprotected for a number of light hours. I don't think it was that year the lawn improved. While Stella Martin Curry is not the greatest fan of March, I found a poem dedicated to it by the 19th century American poet Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson lived towards the end of her life as a virtual recluse known for her reluctance to greet guests. In this poem, however, she's very happy to welcome a long-awaited visitor. Dear March, come in. How glad I am. I looked for you before. Put down your hat. You must have walked. How out of breath you are. Dear March, how are you? And the rest? Did you leave nature well? Oh, March, come right upstairs with me. I have so much to tell. I got your letter and the birds. The maples never knew that you were coming. I declare how red their faces grew. But March, forgive me. At all those hills you left for me to hew, there was no purple suitable. You took it all with you. Who knocks? That April, lock the door. I will not be pursued. He stayed away a year to call when I'm occupied but trifles look so trivial as soon as you have come. That blame is just as dear as praise, and praise as mere as blame. And now, spring, celebrated in food. Here's Mark Devlin getting his teeth into Chinese cooking. Have you ever been tempted by a haggis spring roll? Neither have I, but in Edinburgh, I understand it's quite popular. Perhaps you'd prefer Sichuan alligator. In our house, we love Chinese food, and a perennial favourite is, of course, chunhuan, which I am reliably informed means spring roll. If you've never knowingly come across one, a Chinese spring roll is cylindrical, about four inches long and about an inch in diameter. The outer layer is a very light and crispy pastry, or rice paper, which is fried until it's golden brown. Inside, the fillings are abundant, and typically include, but are in no way limited to, dried sliced mushrooms, shredded pork, dried bamboo shoots and vermicelli. They're often eaten with a dipping sauce for added excitement. Sadly, our local takeaway isn't big on alligator, and nor come to that haggis, but in the wider world, the spring roll enjoys an almost unparalleled variety. In Jimin, they call them spring pancakes and fill them with bamboo shoots, bean sprouts, shrimp, oyster and dried tofu. 
An American spring roll would usually have a meat filling. It can't be as big as a hamburger. Well, it would be in America. Although they can now be found in pretty much every corner of the world in one form or another, spring rolls originated in China. Before the Tang Dynasty, apparently, so we're talking about 600 AD or before, when it consisted of a kind of thin pancake made on the first day of spring. People put them in a dish and added special vegetables and fruits and called it the spring dish. They sent it to relatives and friends as a spring present and a blessing. During the Tang Dynasty, the spring dish was generally decorated with carrots and celery in the case of poorer people, and in the case of the better off, baked and salted meats, various fried items, spinach, chives, eggs, vermicelli, and of course the ubiquitous bean sprout. In the Song Dynasty it was even more luxurious, and as cookery skills developed in the Ming and Xing dynasties, cooks rolled the traditional pancakes into mignon spring rolls. Well liked not only by common folk, but popular as a luxurious treat in the Emperor's Palace as well. They reflected the custom known as biting spring, that is to say, welcoming spring by eating spring cakes. It was believed to ward off disasters and evil. In Hong Kong particularly, spring rolls are one of the most common pastries eaten when people take tea in a tea house. Tea drinking became fashionable in 870s during the Tang Dynasty. Cha was drunk in cups not much bigger than thimbles. For according to a contemporary guide to tea etiquette, moderation is the virtue of tea. The snacks often served with the tea were called touches of the heart. Dinjing, better known abroad in its Cantonese form, dim sum. Spring rolls sold away from the tea houses are much larger, being two inches or more in diameter, the wrappers are crispier than traditional ones, and the fillings are more abundant, understandably very popular as street snacks. Vietnam took the spring roll very much to its heart. Known as Goi Quan, it's one of the most iconic of Vietnamese dishes. Peter Quang Franklin, the chef and owner of Anan Saigon and Niao Niao, both in Ho Chi Minh, says, strictly speaking, Goi Quan is a fresh roll made with rehydrated rice paper. Broadly speaking, the term spring roll can also include any rice paper rolls that have been deep fried. They're delicious, fresh and healthy, and so fit well into the contemporary way of eating. But it's important that the rolls should be prepared on the day of consumption. The lead chef at the Nam Hai Cooking Academy says freshness is the key factor. Despite modernisation, many people still go to the market early every day to buy produce harvested the night before. Prepared too soon, the rice paper will dry out, and the filling can become soggy. So, in a way, these rolls represent a snapshot of local life. Well, you wouldn't want a soggy alligator, would you? BBC's Mark Devlin there, reporting from his local Chinese takeaway. And while we're on the subject of China, 
you'll have heard that there is a lot of trouble in Hong Kong at the moment. One of the long-term effects of the handover from British rule to the Chinese government back in 1997. That transference occurred at midnight on the 1st of July that year. Terry Baldock is a Worcestershire author, but in 1992 he was actually living in Hong Kong, five years before the handover, and while he was there he wrote a fictional story in anticipation of that fateful day. Barney Burnham reads Terry Baldock's Tomorrow. Ron Pate stared angrily at the newspaper. He threw it onto his cluttered desk with disgust. Look at him, just look at him, smiling away as if he owned the place, he groaned. He will, Senior Inspector Grant Jones agreed reluctantly. This time tomorrow. Tomorrow, damn tomorrow, Pate sat down angrily. My mother used to tell me that tomorrow never comes. I didn't believe her. Now I wish she was right. The calendar showed Monday the 30th of June in big, friendly, innocent characters, unaware of the importance of the day that followed. July the 1st, 1997, is less than 24 hours away, and that, that man will be in charge. Pate pointed angrily at the smiling face on the front page. The number of times that I've nearly had him, he sighed. That thing that he negotiated, the retrospective sentencing... There are guys in prison doing life whose sentences will become death tomorrow. But only for crimes committed in the last five years, Ron, Jones explained. Five years. It's as if he planned it to get his own back. If only, Pate sighed again. Know what you mean, Ron, Jones picked up the paper. But that's the way it is. Our jobs and pensions would have been on the line, but then there's no guarantee we'll get them anyway. The door burst open. Both men jumped. What on earth? Oh, oh, it's you, Johnny. What can we do you for? Pate asked wearily. We're not going to believe this, sir. Johnny Wong grinned, closing the door behind him. Today, I'll believe anything. Anything at all. Why so happy? Look at the calendar. Well, sir, Wong waved a file he was carrying. You remember that body that was found on the building site in mid-levels? The decomposed skeleton of a young woman murdered about five years ago, identity unknown, Pate said in a monotone. Not any more. Wong opened the file and placed it carefully in front of his superior. She'd had plenty of expensive dental work. That's how we identified her. Pate picked up the file. Good grief. This isn't possible. Must be a mistake. Apparently not, sir. Johnny Wong's grin widened. Well, well, well. Pate picked up the discarded newspaper and poked the picture on the front page with his finger. The point is, what on earth are we going to do now? Tai Tat Ming Albert Tai to his friends let the luxury of leather enfold him. 
The Rolls-Royce purred along Connaught Road, the chauffeur driving in the manner to be expected of the soon-to-be chief executive of Hong Kong, aggressively but with style. Tai smiled. One more day and all this would be his. He switched on the computer in the back of the front seat, placed the small compact disc into the slot and watched his face appear on the screen. Once more he ran through the past five years. The changes not only to Hong Kong but to him personally. A man hardly known five years ago, he'd taken advantage of circumstances. The riots of 94, the near catastrophe at Daya Bay in 95, the major problems in finding labour for the airport project. Luckily, he'd been able to solve the problem, mainly because he'd caused it in the first place. His sudden rise to prominence with the backing of those over the border, his hard bargaining at all those interminable meetings, and his pièce de résistance, the changing of the law. Now he'd be able to get his own back on all those who treated him badly over the years. Those British. A lame duck had been replaced by a puppy that would roll over and let you tickle it, provided that the tickler was the master. Now he would control this jewel in the crown. The telephone buzzed. The computer screen showed a fuzzy image. Then, as the automatic scrambler came on, a well-known face appeared. Ty smiled to think that this person was calling him. If only Jenny could see him now. Poor Jenny. Later that day, Deputy Commissioner of Police Colin Proudfoot looked out over the harbour. He'd grown old here. There were many good memories, but memories didn't pay bills. There was a knock on the door. Ah, oh, yes, come in, Ron. And you, Grant. What's your problem on this day of all days? Pate took a seat and smiled to himself. Jones stood. Well, sir, I don't really know how to put this. <clears throat> Pate coughed nervously, then with confidence. Who would you most like to see as a guest of the Correctional Services Department, sir? Proudfoot swivelled in his chair, his eyes lit up with something approaching hate. Who? Why, you know the answer to that, don't you, Ron? He stood and walked to the window. Hands behind his back, he looked out at the view and then turned suddenly to face the two men in the room. Who is it that's eroded the powers of the police to such an extent that this time tomorrow we'll all be looking to get point duty? Who is it that allowed the Chinese to bring in the public security police to quell riots that he helped start in the first place? Who managed to destroy democracy, increase prison sentencing, change the law to suit himself? Retrospective sentencing, for goodness sake. I could go on. Would that be Albert Tai Tat Ming, by any chance? Pate offered. Of course it damn well would. Who else could it be? But he's well thought of by China. His father was a hero of the Long March, Pate goaded. I don't care what his daddy did in March or any other month, for that matter. He paused as he noticed the smile on the other officers' faces. What, what, what are you smiling for? Have you found something on him? Yes, sir, we have. Pate confidently placed the pink file on his superior's desk, and it could be the biggie. He paused for effect. Murder. Proudfoot looked at Pate as if he'd just said that aliens had landed at Czech Lapcock. Then he looked at the report. Jenny Tai? That body was Jenny Tai. No doubt, sir, Jones said. 
She was killed late 92, then buried. The building works uncovered a skeleton. Let me get this right, the elder policeman thought for a moment. Jenny Ty's body has been on a building site since 1992, and yet, if I remember correctly, she went to Canada for urgent medical treatment. There was a big hoo-ha about it, then she died not long after cancer or something. Pate nodded. Somebody went to Canada in 1992, sir, though it wasn't Jenny Ty. We were supposed to think it was. Then who died in Canada? An imposter, someone who looked like her. Money does some wonderful things. You're right there. Wasn't it Albert Ty who said that he saw nothing wrong with a little corruption? He thought that if you had money, then you should use it to sweeten things along. Proudfoot thought, if we can nail him, those boys at ICAC will be happy. We've been busy this morning, sir. The woman that died in Canada was most definitely not Jenny Ty. The doctor that signed the death certificate is conveniently dead. Albert Ty identified the body. I wish you'd told me this before lunch. I'd have enjoyed it more. Bradfoot stifled a belch. You've corroborated this with the Canadians, I take it? Pate nodded. The problem is, sir, what do we do now? Proudfoot sat down and rubbed his chin pensively. We must tell the Commissioner. Must we, sir? Peyton Jones said almost in unison. Of course we must. For heaven's sake, Albert Ty's going to be the new chief executive. We can't just go in there and arrest him today of all days. Why not, sir? Suspicion of murder. We've proof that the body is his wife. Witnesses that say he ID'd that body in Canada, Ron Pate explained. And there's no way anyone will arrest him tomorrow. Today, he's still under our jurisdiction. Tomorrow? Yes, Ron, say no more. Proudfoot held up his hands. Tomorrow is another place, another time. Another universe, Jones whispered. As good as, Proudfoot agreed. Right, we'll need a warrant. Pate pulled a paper from his inside pocket. Which I see you already have. It'll play hell with tonight's arrangements. Marjorie was so looking forward to the dinner and ball. Perhaps we can make it enjoyable for you as well, sir, Pate grinned. For all of us, if we time it right. Ty looked at himself in the mirror as he dressed for his big occasion. In a few hours, he'd be the top man in Hong Kong. He'd promised to run the place in accordance with the much-amended joint declaration and basic law. But what was a promise worth these days? He thought, as he tied his bow tie, of how he'd help his friends and destroy his enemies. His friends across the border were straining at their leashes to pillage the place, but legally, of course. Later, as he listened to the purr of his car's engine, he reflected on the fact that he wouldn't need a bulletproof limousine. He was bulletproof himself, he chuckled. Bulletproof and invincible, that was him. The rolls drew into Government House. The cameras were on him as he alighted and walked up the red carpet. Pageantry. The British loved pageantry. The dinner was an odd affair. On the one hand, a celebration, and on the other, a wake. Deputy Commissioner Proudfoot made small talk with the woman sitting next to him. His wife was enjoying herself, getting slowly sozzled on the free champagne. Midnight approached. It was hot in the garden. The humidity was high. The still air was full of moisture. The sky on the verge of tears. 
Even the sad flag refused to flutter on the flagstaff. The governor started his speech about a historic occasion, never before in the history of the world, etc., etc. The television cameras sent his words by satellite to all corners of the earth. This handover was not a private affair. Unlike 99 years previously, when Governor Johnson had accepted Hong Kong in front of a couple of hundred people on behalf of a small nation. The clock ticked on towards 12. Albert Tai stepped up onto the stage, ready to accept his glittering prize. There was a commotion in the crowd. A small, determined band of shabbily dressed expats pushed their way through the perspiring throng, spilling drinks without apologies. It was almost time to hand over. It was Tai Tat Ming's great moment. The clock showed three minutes remaining. As the soon-to-be ex-governor of Hong Kong wound up his speech, Ron Pate stepped onto the rostrum, pulled a paper from his inside pocket, and smiled as he stood face to face with the man he'd wanted for years. The world heard Pate say, Albert Tai Tat Ming, I have a warrant for your arrest on suspicion of murder. The cameras captured Pate's look of delight as Tai was grabbed by the uniformed police. They zoomed in on Albert Tai and recorded the look of horror that replaced his supercilious calm. His expression changed from that of a cat who'd eaten the cream to that of a cornered rat. The governor stood alone, open-mouthed, his hand ready to congratulate Tai. Other officials stood silent, totally lost. The carefully orchestrated program now a shambles. But Ron Pate watched in delight as the nearly chief executive was led away to face justice under the Chinese legal system. The clocks had stopped chiming. It was July the 1st, and Ron Pate thought that maybe things were not quite so bad after all. Well, that just about wraps it up for this edition, which was duplicated by David and Sylvia Day, with administration by Carol Hartle. The producer was John Plush. My thanks to Catherine. Goodbye. Jane. Goodbye. And Phil. Goodbye. I'm Pippa, and I'll leave you with a spring-inspired tongue twister I found in a book that belongs to my daughter. It's called Read Me and Laugh, a funny poem for every day of the year. And this particular poem appeared for the date April the 2nd. A tree toad loved a she-toad that lived up a tree. She was a three-toed tree toad, but a two-toed toad was he. The two-toed toad tried to win the she-toad's friendly nod, for the two-toed toad loved the ground on which the three-toed toad trod. But no matter how the two-toed tree toad tried, he could not please her whim. In her tree-toed bower, with her three-toed power, the she-toad vetoed him. Goodbye.